Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. On episode seven of the Platform to Perform podcast, I have Ben Lucas. Full disclaimer, Ben is a very good friend of mine. We first met when I was on an internship as part of the strength and conditioning team at Durham University. And I've since gone on to coach alongside Ben in Germany as part of a pre-season for a German lacrosse team. Ben challenged me to learn German and to be able to coach in it. And this was one of the most uh, challenging coaching periods of my strength conditioning career. And for that reason, I wanted to get Ben on the podcast. Having had international experience as an England lacrosse player at a youth level and now going on to coach uh, sport at a school level whilst being a languages teacher, I feel like Ben has an interesting story to tell when it comes to getting coaches to perform outside of their comfort zone. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing well, mate. Thank you very much for having me on. My absolute pleasure. One of my favorite books is Simon Sinek's Start With Why. So one of the questions I ask all the guests who come onto the podcast is, why do you do what you do? So fire away. Well, which bit, which bit of my, my life do you want me to talk about? I've got, um, I've got a variety of things that I do. I'm a dad, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a teacher, um, and beginning a hopefully an enjoyable career as a, as a, as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete. So um, which one would you like me to talk about first? Uh, I would like you to, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball in here. Um, I would like you to talk about why you teach languages and then you can go into the sporting side of things. Okay. So why I teach languages? Well, my, you were at my, my wedding. Um, and part of my, my speech involved a bit of a, I suppose an, an homage or an honoring of my, my granddad, um, who I must say, I can't say I, I knew him spectacularly well, but he was a, a classics and a languages teacher. Um, and that sort of inspiration, um, that he gave was, was very powerful for me. Um, and what's more, I think, he he was able to pass on a love for teaching and to help identify in me an ability to to explain things and a patience when um, taking a student through maybe something very very basic, but being able to rekindle that love, that joy of learning. Um, and there's a there's actually a quote, a theological quote um, that. I think I might even Dan might have got it from Dan John, but it went more on the lines of um, human beings. Perhaps it's not that we we get young too quick; it's that we get old too quick, and we we lose that joy of the simple things, and we lose our, our sense of wonder. And is it that every single morning God's actually got a very young heart and just wants to see the sunrise again? and wants to hear the bird song again because he has a, a passion and a joy for those things. And I remember prior to starting the PGCE, really examining myself. I mean, we were in, Victor in Berlin together um, doing Victoria Lacrosse and examining whether I really wanted to spend a lot of my life you know, going through the, the alphabet with kids, teaching them numbers in German and maybe just repeating myself again and again and again. Um, and what I kept coming back to is that I have a joy. I, I, I get joy from, um, from the simplest things. And I, I enjoy that wonder of teaching something to a student that I've had for years, but I'm able to pass it on. And that's, that is difficult as a teacher in this day and age. Um, certainly in Britain, I don't think the education system is ideal for for kind of inculcating that in students. But if you've got that fire in you, I know you're starting a PGC next year. If you've got that, that joy for what you're to teaching, it doesn't matter if the kid throws a chair at you. It doesn't matter if they're <laughs> amazing. It doesn't matter that they're not listening, whatever it is, you have that, that 
passion for what you're teaching um, and you have a passion for teaching, you have a passion for helping kids, adults, old people improve in whatever it is that you, you know, you're helping them with. Um, and the rest of it really, really did come later. Um, you know, I've read Simon Sinek's book as well, and I think he makes a very, very good point that your why is the, the, the driver. It's the, it's the driving force and the, the how and the what. They necessarily come later. If you don't have the, the why, then, um, then, then really whatever it is that you're going to do has an expiry date on it. Yeah, some of the examples he gives, doesn't he, um, of of competitors maybe to Southwest Airlines or or to Apple um, or to the Wright Brothers. Um, You know, it's it's a really really fun book the way he's written it. Some of the competitors had the what? Well, this is what we're going to do, and the others were like, "Wow, we're doing this," and no wonder that they've been able to to continue. Um, Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah, definitely along those lines. It's a good, a good uh, segue into uh, start with why being a teacher. Absolutely, yeah. and I I love Simon Sinek's comparison of the two men building the cathedral, and as you said, somebody being part of something that is bigger than themselves. So as a strength and conditioning coach, and obviously working in a school for two years now, one of the interesting things I've learned is whether there is a difference between coaching and teaching. And I know some people have slightly different views. Perhaps as a language teacher, the difference might be slightly more pronounced for you. But my one, do you think there are any differences between coaching and teaching? And if you do, or even if you don't, um, what is your opinion on what these are? I, I think my, since you first asked me that question, my answers developed a little bit. Imagine as a as an SNC coach or a PE teacher, you were only dealing with a class of 20 only and the goals that you had for that group of people were quite specific quite specific from your mind i'm getting a child from x you know from from a a to a to c or x to z um but actually the the goals for the for the individual are quite general um Whereas compare that to one-to-one um, S&C training where you have an individual, your analysis um, of where they're at is very, very specific, very bespoke. And where you're getting them is very, very bespoke. And the way that you get them there, their journey is just for them. Um, I, would, I would say that I, those aren't my two definitions of teaching and coaching, okay. but... Though that is the difference for me at the moment between my language teaching and say my language tutoring. So I have a, I'm a tutor to a few students uh, outside of class. Um, but my job at the school um, is more, necessarily is that more general approach. I think the coaching, the coaching would probably be more in the, the ballpark of the specific you know, the one-to-one, one-to-two. Um, you've got your elite group of, of athletes that you're helping get somewhere very specific. I don't know whether coaching necessarily means that they're elite level. Um, a coach really, I think, is more the, the attitude of the person who's helping get them somewhere, um, that they're, they're much more involved in whatever that person is doing. Whereas a teacher is for want of a better explanation um a teacher is is simply passing on some knowledge um and trying to get that student to to attain and acquire that knowledge and it seems that the format for that at the moment is more bigger groups but because an snc coach might not have a big group of students as much as say as a secondary school teacher. Um, I think the distinction can kind of be lost. Yeah. But if you had a PE teacher and an S&C coach, it would be the same sort of spectrum as a languages teacher and a language tutor. That's, that's a really nice description. I obviously never thought of it in that way. Obviously 
for me coming into a school environment, it was interesting because I'm like, right, I can plan a strength conditioning program. And obviously I have the tools in my toolbox to teach the physical movement skills and obviously regress and progress movement. But as you said, that yeah. uh, approach as to how specific can you actually be at a general level, it's mm. certainly an interesting contrast. One question that I did want to ask you, especially with the uh, t- um, classroom experience is, yeah. is there any skills that you've learned from your classroom based teaching that has helped you in your coaching of sport, be it lacrosse, rugby, or something else? Oh, good question. Yes, yes, undoubtedly. Um, I think first and foremost is is my awareness of, 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 of the pupils, where they're coming from, what they're trying to learn. Um, I would rarely go out onto a sports field now and just say, right, let's just, let's just kick the ball about. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and actually sometimes that is really helpful. Sometimes that's a, that's a great thing to do, but I would only ever do that if I'd had the, the forethought prior, okay, this is where the, the boys are at. This is where we're trying to get them. Um, and right now, actually, maybe it's to blow off steam. Maybe it's to reduce stress. Maybe actually they need a, a significant portion of time to practice the skills that we've been teaching so you see the difference i've I've, i'd I'd either come in saying right let's just let's just play for two hours or it's like let's let's just play for two hours and they're all like yes but in my mind i'm i've got you know i'm thinking and i've got a i've got a reason why now um my sports coach actually has developed over this year quite in a quite a, a nice way um, there's, a, there's a very good director of football and director of rugby at the school, and they both encourage the the questioning of of the boys. They're both real advocates of um, developing a, a sustainable and robust sports program. Um, and so, what that that tends to allow is um, slower but better progress with with the boys um i might only cover two things in a in a sports session and i might ask loads of questions and to an outsider actually the boys don't seem to be getting it as quick as the other group where the coach just tells them what to do right but if um if you came back a year later my 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 footballers my rugby players are probably much better independently on the field because they've been able to take on that knowledge, those challenges for themselves. They're allowed to, you know, they're able to think um, more independently um, on the field, in the field of battle, when things are going all over the place, when situations are changing. One of the challenges, for instance, I have for myself as a sports coach during games is to basically be quiet. It's to say almost nothing. And, um, the difference there, and I like this analogy between language teaching and sports, the difference is that I don't think boys um, at my school really get that equivalent of a game. I don't think they get that equivalent of, right, now I'm going to challenge myself in a, a fun but, but difficult way, I'm going to challenge myself and my my newly learned language ability. I that's so thing when when I've been reflecting on that, how my sports and language are influencing each other. My pedagogy on the sports field has been improving because of what I've been learning in the language classroom. In the language classroom, I'm having to introduce new things, new stages to challenge the boys in the same way that you would give them a competitive fixture at the weekend. So it's, it's very much give and take. And it's very enjoyable. Well, at least when you've got the time and you're not stressed, it's very enjoyable to sit down with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and have a notebook and think, wow, I can really reflect on these things. Um, and, and hopefully maybe over the next, next year, two years, I'll really be able to perfect that um, and what that looks like. What it looked like this past week was giving the boys a set of questions in French and German, which they know the answers to. You know, the simple, what's your name? What my name is? Where do you live? I live in. 
and we've covered it. You know, we've done it this year, so it's not new, it's just rusty. And so the challenge at the end of the week was, right, we're going to have one lesson entirely conversation. It's like a coffee, coffee shop, coffee bar, yeah. just face, face a partner and talk. And they love it. And they love it. And a lot of the studies in, in MFL um, are showing that to get boys engaged, you need to be active. You need to be talking a lot. Um, you need to be essentially giving them ownership and responsibility and challenging them early on. Um, the irony being that there is almost a crisis in language learning at the moment. Kids don't want to do it, especially boys. Actually, when you do this engaging, um, communication-heavy approach, um, young lads just, they, they beat girls uh, on tests. They are more enthusiastic in the classroom, and they're the ones that want to do languages. So... That is to say, all sorts of challenges flying around for me as a language teacher at the moment. The journey never stops. But um, but yes, there's definitely that give, that give and take. And I think at the moment, I've been able to make more progress on the sports field with the pedagogy learning in the classroom. The challenge that's going to come is is bringing that those, those, uh, those lessons learned on the sports field back into the classroom. And that's going to be more challenging. I love, I love what you said there, that your biggest challenge is actually to stay quiet. It's definitely something I've faced, especially, for example, you set up a drill, you explain it clearly and what you want out of it. And then for whatever reason, some people get it and they know where people, for example, are meant to be or whatever. And some people don't. And it's tempting to almost get in and be like, you go here, you go here, you move here. But actually, I think, as you said, leaving it to the kids to actually organize is absolutely critical as you said short term versus long term short term you get in there and put people in the right place and the drill might seemingly make you look good but longer term actually having those leaders who understand the game better and understand that in order for it to transfer we need people who can think as you said in the heat of battle not just people who know the drill for the drill's sake and being able to transfer Mm. those skills over in in terms of transferring those skills to the field of play obviously we met at durham university uh, i was lucky enough yep. to work under several strength and conditioning coaches there as were you and i've been fortunate enough to work on alongside you in your opinion what qualities differentiate good coaches from great coaches oh my um I think the first one's going to have to be a sense of humor, but not a sense of humor that that that, that pulls people down. Maybe the, the the best coaches seem to have that that presence which um, encourages everyone in the room. Everyone feels boosted because of um, the the positivity and the the humor that that said coach is bringing. Um, I must say, I don't feel like I've had many great coaches. I've had a lot of a lot of coaches, a lot of lacrosse coaches. Um, there was a real absence of coaching at Durham, actually, for lacrosse. Um, something that I, I look back on with real frustration because my my goal at Durham was to you know to become world class, um, and it was just just very very difficult to do that without a coach there. Um, you were <laughs> you were relying on uh, you know college age American athletes who knew what they were doing, but you know, go back to the previous question. I did not have a clue. Most of them, how to, uh, they, they literally just came and copied what their, their college. And some of them had had dreadful, you know, guys that you'd probably be thinking that's nearly child abuse. What that man did. Um, and so they would like, well, we do did that. So we'll do it here. And everyone's like, um, not going to work. <laughs> I think the, the the best coaches also have that real awareness. It's people skills. That real awareness of where is Timmy today? You know, we can do a readiness check. We can you know make sure that Timmy knows what what he's he's going to do. Maybe he's doing a power clean. Maybe he's learning to shoot properly um, on the lacrosse field. Maybe he's 
yeah, maybe he's just doing some mobility. I don't know. Really could be anything. But that that intuition that a good coach has, just from you know multiple uh, years of experience dealing with people. Okay, Timmy says he's fine. Okay, is Timmy fine? And how can I how can I build that relationship in the moment, but also mid long term, so that when I ask Timmy how he's doing, he knows that I really care, and he can feel that he can tell me um, in a confidential and appropriate way. Um, and how am I gonna? You know, and then then comes the expertise. Then then comes a guy like Dan John. He says, "Right, well, I've got an enormous bank of technical expertise. The actual real expertise comes from how do I apply that in different situations? And then the real experts can just do it. So maybe Timmy's come in and he's had an argument with his mum. He's not had any any good food that morning. Um, he's sleep deprived. He's not drank any water." Maybe what Timmy really wants is just to go shoot some three-pointers on the basketball field and have a cup of coffee afterwards and a glass of water and a nice lunch, right? I mean, an S&C coach might be sitting there going, that's not my job, not my job at all. However, if it's appropriate, you know, you obviously can't do this all the time um, with every single student, but if it's appropriate, then actually, yes, it is your job. Um, you know, if, if, if you're, if you're the person there when a situation occurs and you're the first responder, it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a school shooting or it's first aid or it's a student that needs your help. You're the one with responsibility. You need to react, you need to respond. So on the other hand, you, you, you might have Timmy comes in and he is just lit. He is on top of the world for whatever reason. He thinks he's Hercules. He is he is Zeus that moment. And actually, he could probably smash every single record he's ever set in the gym, and he'll come in the next morning and be fine. And maybe his self-esteem could use a great boost. Maybe, actually, you need to just be like, all right, Timmy, come. You are human. <laughs> just remember, let's, you know, let's not. But, it, you know, again, being able to do that, that ego check in a really kind, compassionate way. Um, that comes with time. It comes with observing the greats. But yeah, th- I think those those would be maybe the, the the qualities that I would I would say either I've had or I've really wanted in a good coach, and that I strive to have in myself as a result. Yeah, I I love the idea, and I completely agree with you that whilst technical expertise is undoubtedly important with unbelievable technical expertise and minimal social or people skills, a coach's ability to influence a group of athletes is going to be very limited. I, in my own coaching, I do tend to reflect on my social interaction and how well that's gone. What other assessments or reflections or questions do you use to evaluate your own coaching practice and do these differ at all when you evaluate your own teaching practice, say, in a classroom? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I think the, re- the reality of most teaching and coaching that I get to do is that life gets in the way. and reflections and that kind of thing they really take a back burner and they shouldn't do um so guilty is charged um in terms of reflecting on my teaching usually my my short term and then my my kind of long-term reflection would be well did we, did we manage what we wanted to do in the lesson? If not, why? And the mid to long term is kind of along the lines of, did they acquire that knowledge sufficiently that they've been able to, to apply it and master it later on? On the sports field, you get that feedback very quickly because it's physical. It's, can he kick the ball? Can 
Can he shoot accurately? Can he pass? Can he communicate better? Um, and so that feedback's that feedback is actually independent of you on a sports field because there's, a, there's so much interaction between others. There's so much need for application, which going back to your, your, your earlier question, I want to have way more application in my languages classroom to get that feedback. I think part of the problem with, with current teaching is that a lot of teachers feel that they are constantly, they're just in a feedback fight. They are in the trenches having to find out if their students have learned anything. Um, and I, I, I know how that feels. It's very difficult. But the reflection um, is therefore quite difficult because you might, you might not see something straight away. Student might say, yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full. How high, sir? And, and everything looks great. And then two weeks later, and they've spelt it wrong. Or they have, they've used it incorrectly or they've just plain forgotten because, you know, an ocean of, of other information is crowding out what you're trying to teach them. So, yeah, it's, it's tough. So my next question, you've kind of alluded to it earlier. You've said that we perhaps don't assess education very well in this country. Um, so I'd like you to talk about one, why you feel that's the case and potentially a million dollar, question, eh? million dollar question indeed, and potentially an even trickier one for the flaws that you see in how we assess education. What recommendations would you make in order to alleviate those flaws? Um, I think with regards to, um, just one second, Natalie and, and Jacob here. Hello. Yes, you can. Oh. Hello. Ah, first baby on the podcast. Yeah, we're on a podcast. <laughs> You're retarded. This this is real world assessment, by the way. This um, is real world assessment, indeed. How, how well did you do as a dad? It tells you straight away. Um, remember, Todd? There we go, big smile. Hey. Yes. So back to your question about um, educational assessment. Um, I mean, there there are as many theories as there are. You know specks of sand on a beach really um i my character is very much go out and do things go out and let's see some real practical real world application um i think that makes me a um a helpful asset to to my department because you know those bad lads at the back of the class i can really relate to them and I really want to relate to them and I want to make whatever learning I'm giving them enjoyable. Um, I, I think a real detriment of, of educational assessment at the moment is that lack of real world application. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think a lot of students, yeah. myself included, become immediately disengaged with certain subjects or the way they're taught simply because even at a young age, they're like, when am I possibly ever going to use what you're teaching me? Um, my convenient question. Um, thank you very much, Jacob is how, if at all has becoming a father either changed how you coach or teach or influenced you as a coach or teacher? Um, well, being a dad is immensely easy compared to being a mum. And homage to my wife. Um, but uh, be, being a dad is, I think, more about, um, with, with regards to that teaching, a lot of the, or at least in, in, in our household, where my, my wife... Um, my wife is, is, is at home essentially doing the, the, the day-to-day um, raising of, the, of, our, of our son whilst I'm at work. 
it's almost it's almost like the the, the overview that I take. Um, whilst Natalie's in the trenches doing the you know the day to day stuff, the minutiae, um, the monotony, the boring stuff, and I get to come home and um, have a hug. Hey, how is everyone doing? And then just get almost like a snapshot. It's it's, it's the equivalent between um, you know a four hour rugby game and seeing a twenty minute highlight reel. That's at the moment. That's the difference. Um, it will change, but that's the difference. And I think um, how being a dad has has affected how how my my, my teaching and my coaching is that awareness of just the sacrifice my wife makes raising a superhero. Um, it's what I always say when people say, what, oh, what does your wife do for work? And I say, oh, she raises superheroes. Because I'm just so sick of people denigrating stay-at-home mums. I think they're the, the, the hardest working people on the planet. Um, and I think they're amazing. Um, you know, Props to, to women that do other things, but I'm sick. I'm just making my stand here. I'm really tired of people talking down on, on stay-at-home mums. Um, so I, I just kind of tongue in cheek say, yeah, she's raising the superhero. I like that. Um, yeah, I've gone around the house a little bit to answer your question. To answer your question, how has being a dad affected my teaching, my coaching? It has made me very, very patient um, in terms of identifying when a student has a real need um, and is really struggling and the struggle is, is, is real. Um, and they just... You, you get a father's heart. You know, if you if you if you really want to be a teacher, especially a teacher to to young younger kids and and boys, you have to have a father's heart for them. You have to care. Um, you know, I think I think humans are at their best when we care for one another. But particularly, I think men and and young lads are at their best when they care for one another in a way that isn't you know My Little Pony and and that kind of thing it's more I'm with you and I've got you and you know we can do this together and and you know together we're stronger that kind of uh, reinforcement of one another is helpful and again we keep going back to this theme that doesn't work if boys don't have somewhere to apply it so boys need a mission I think and boys need some somewhere to to really that 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 test um for for whatever they've learned or whatever they're trying to do they need that right of initiation to prove that they've got it and that they can do it um and i think it's very metaphorical very symbolic for young for young men um i have by no means mastered that i am level one of a hundred um but that that's my passion really um for now that's my passion now as a dad seeing where these young lads are at being able to teach them something but also be there for them in a way that they need and you know the the reality is is that most most lads will just happily take 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 and it's not that they're being selfish they're just completely oblivious to whatever it is that you're trying to do or whatever it is you're giving but you know, you put your chips down in the hope that one day you've really helped them in a way that they realise all of a sudden. Um, it's a tough question, Todd. To be honest, is yeah. there any? Is there? Is there? Have I answered that in no, a way? I don't, I don't answer that sufficiently, but no, no, no. That's what comes I, to mind. I think, as you said, that added patience, patience, especially as you said, when you're teaching kids, whether it is the well, the ABC equivalent. <laughs> as you said, having that patience. And if for me, what I'm getting across from that is that becoming a dad has made you more patient. Um, I'm going to play the role of an awkward student now, just because you helped me so much in giving me the opportunity to come to Victoria lacrosse in Berlin with you. You challenged me to speak German and to coach in German because there wasn't really an alternative. And for me, that improved my coaching because as you said, I couldn't, give verbose explanations it was one maybe two words a sentence if i'm lucky um and that developed me as a coach but 
with your life experience in Israel, Russia, Germany, what are the other benefits to learning a language, be it for a coach or a PE teacher, whatever, besides the obvious of being able to work abroad? So I say to you, say to me, learn a language. I say to you, I have no intention of working abroad. Sell me languages. Go. That's a really hard question. Um, sell you languages even though you don't want to use them. Right. Um, I was going to say, just to give you a little bit of uh, thinking yeah. time, it's something that I think about when I try and think about the way I teach versus the way that I coach in the strength and conditioning suite. So, for example, it's easier sure. to do it with an athlete who is, for example, in the gym off their own volition because they want to get better at their sport versus then how do you deliver physical education to somebody who's like, oh, I'm never going to be sporty or I just flat out don't like sport. And I think going full circle back to our coaching and teaching question, okay. that for me right, is something true. that I'm trying to be aware of because my PGC is going to be physical education plus biology, chemistry and physics to a GCC level. Now I've got that insight of, for example, even though I've not done chemistry in years, having yeah. the sciences leads to sports science, led to my master's in strength and conditioning, allows me to dive deeper into physiology. But without those building blocks, even though I don't, for example, obsess over chemistry or physics, it is relevant, for example, in the sport of powerlifting when you're talking about lactate, uh, lactate building up in the system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so deliberately tricky question but it's almost me preparing myself for what's to come and just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I suppose with, with the two examples you gave, you've got an athlete who wants to defeat the world and be a world champion. Um, you've got uh, a, a, a kid that really has no dramatic aspirations for sport but is in the gym and you're trying to motivate them um for the second one i suppose your your options could be showing them new things that 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 subject might help them with um or might open doors to and that might that might spark an, an inspiration maybe that's that's a, a road you could go down that tends to be um, at a very basic level, what a lot of languages departments try to do with their students. They say, oh, you know, you could work abroad, you could do this. Um, this is the biggest language. This is the, the second. You know, and, and a lot of kids, unfortunately, don't even have the creativity to, to, to think beyond, um, you know, the day after tomorrow's breakfast. Yeah. It's just, yeah. they don't think like that. And not, yeah. not many of them have that, oh, I can plan on my life without being um, to interrupt there that's one of that's one of my reflections as well in terms of yeah. from a PE standpoint it's very easy on paper to say to a child who is perhaps not really interested in physical education but what about your health think about when you get 70 80 years down the line or whatever but I think that's in my opinion is almost us trying to impose an adult way of thinking onto a young child because I'm sure you were the same I didn't care about what I was going to be doing 80 years from now. I didn't even know what I was doing for lunchtime. Um, but yeah, again, sorry to interrupt, but it's just, it's this e a great point. It's easy as an adult to be like, Oh, but you actually don't know what the future holds for you. And it's the same for yeah. me dealing with early sports specialization. Yes. You love tennis now, but maybe you want to have the skills to be, I don't know, a swimmer when you're older or whatever. Mm. So trying to, break it down to that kid's level and where they're at right now the reason why i asked a deliberately tricky question is because yeah that's something that i've reflected on in my own coaching i don't have the answer to that question to be honest todd actually um i'm still trying to figure out how to get get kids into languages i don't think the current approach works mm -hmm. i don't think kids necessarily care uh, i mean uh, i'll preface this the chinese kids care because the Chinese kids come over with this huge expectation of my my dad, my mum, my family um, demands that I do X language because this will have a 
tremendous capacity for um, for improving my life prospects in the future and making me international. They come over here with seriously with the cogs going, but that hasn't been independent. And no. you end up with um, some real kind of robotic sort of. I mean, they're good, great kids. Don't get me wrong, but if you asked these kids to to write some poetry or you ask these kids to express themselves in a way where you thought, wow, now I know the heart of that kid, um, they struggle. It's not that they don't have that capacity, it's that they struggle with it. Yeah. Whereas often you get those rebellious kids, those kids that just want to break stuff, and actually you find out a way to crack that, find a way to harness it, and ask them, express yourself to me, tell me who you are, you get something gold. So I, I think... <laughs> Therefore, perhaps the whole idea of how we motivate kids towards languages is broken. Because if we're trying to get kids to think like adults before they're ready, that's that's always going to be doomed to fail. However, I think what I've noticed works really well with, with young boys, I can only really speak as, because I work at a boys' school, one of the most... Um, Hotly anticipated events in the in the MFL department calendar is the Linguistics Olympiad, um, and this is this is a competition where teams of students sit down and they try to crack linguistic puzzles. So they might get given a text in Japanese, and they are given a few clues, and they have to work out what the text means and then answer some questions. They love it. They get given ancient Aboriginal languages or really obscure Malaysian or you know, Indonesian languages which have 400 speakers um, or an extinct Maltese language. Um, and they, they end up having to work it out. And they love that because they love the, the challenge. But that challenge is right there, right now, and it, it helps them in that moment feel wow i've solved something um i suppose you could sell it confidence building i suppose you could sell it you are going to improve your brain capacity because bilingualism improves the plasticity of your brain your brain function is is heightened you are basically turning your it's like getting an upgrade on your brain if you do a, a language but that intrinsic motivation that you mentioned you're going to have to give me a few years with, of reflection and teaching and coaching because I still don't know the answer. I, I, I think, though, you've hit the nail on the head in the sense of, and this is how I try and think in terms of, for example, um, something that's very close to my heart and the reason why I'm so passionate about teaching kids, for example, how to, even to perform a basic squat and why that's important. And yes, my adult brain doesn't match up to their childhood experiences, but my nan, bless her, um, when she came out of hospital for the last time, I specifically remember my dad saying the care is trying to lift her up. And my dad saying, she's got no strength. She's lost. She's got lost all her leg strength. And ironically me saying to kids, we'll do some games where we get up and down off the floor. And I said, Oh, that's brilliant. You can do that. I'm really, really pleased with the effort you're showing. How many of your grandparents can do that? And then obviously some people who are lucky enough to have grandparents hands go up. Um, but by and large, most of them stay down. And then we talk about the importance of that as you get older. And ironically, I'd probably say that description is probably more for me and my personal passion and desire to remain as physically strong as I can for as long as possible. And especially to help those I love is probably not something that their young child brains are ready for. And that's perfectly fine. But I love the idea of you saying, yes, okay, they might not be motivated by physical education. They might not be motivated by language per se. Maybe they're not even mature enough to know what they want to do in the future. But you give them a challenge right now and you give them the skills or the tools to be able to solve that challenge. I think over time, that's where the magic happens. I asked a deliberately awkward question because I don't actually feel there are necessarily, and I think if you did have the answer for that, then we'd be on mega money somewhere. Um, but giving them a chance. Well, no, we that's, that's, that's the sad irony, Todd. We wouldn't. Um, people don't care. They don't care. That's, that's, that's a real, real tragedy of education in this country is that ultimately, provided you get the GCSE, 
provided you get the A-level, people do not care whether you learn things. They don't care. And that, and this goes back to what, what we were talking about earlier with the real-world application, real-world. I've met tilers and painters and ex-prisoners who are wiser than PhD people that I've met. They, they know more. And the irony is it's not necessarily maybe that the quantity of stuff that they know is more, but they have more real-world know-how. They know how to do things better. Someone could talk to me about, about theoretical black holes till the cows come home. I don't care. I really don't care. Someone talks to me about, you know, how to interact with difficult groups of people or, you know, goodness me, something that's really applicable to, to whatever it is that I'm doing or something that's just darn interesting that I see exactly what he's talking about. That, I just, I think that's gold. That guy's got a PhD in in headology and common sense wow <laughs> yeah common sense isn't that yeah. common but going back to it that is. point one of the um yeah. so as an example i've never really been interested in geography it doesn't really do much for me um watched a david attenborough program on climate change and mm. they started by saying the, the planet's heating up by one degrees and i was like great what like i, I don't actually know what the implications of that are and to me, I'm like, oh, one degrees, that doesn't sound like that much. But then they showed the impact that it had on, for example, thousands of bats being extinct, the polar, the ice caps obviously melting, dumping loads of water into the, obviously uh, melting into mm. the sea, flooding parts of land where humans have lived for however many years. And now I'm like, ah, now, now I yeah. see the real world application of what you're talking about. Um, and I think it's, again, it's something that I want to be mindful of in terms of my teaching. And as you said, we shouldn't see ourselves as, like you said, teaching languages to pass a GCSE or an A-level, or for example, getting you physically active for, for example, your secondary school life. For me, I'm like, can a kid leave school, be able to pursue whatever physical activity they want because they have the movement skills, understand the psychological and social aspects of why it's important to keep yourself healthy, how to even write a training program. I had a chat with a good friend of mine who teaches at a school and he said he's shocked that kids come through a whole uh, curriculum of physical education and they've no idea about simple concepts like progressive overload, um, intensity, frequency, um, and all of these things which should be fundamental, but the way yeah. we're assessing their education isn't actually, for example, teaching them skills which they will use in the later outside world i think this has been absolutely superb mate i'm gonna uh finish up with last quest last couple of questions is and this doesn't have to be language related doesn't have to be strength conditioning related wherever you feel you would derive most enjoyment or personal development from uh if you could recommend one person for me to speak to or one person for me to follow on social media who would that person be and why Oh my! Um, I think the social media one's difficult because I, I I'm not really a social media okay. shark. Um, a guy that, I, although a, a guy that I do find really interesting from a health and fitness perspective is a guy called Doctor Mercola, M E R C O L A, um, and he's he's produced some great content and he's. Um, he's, he's not really new agey or anything like that, crystals and whatnot, but he is, um, in a very, very, um, honest and analytical sort of way, um, conscious of the, the benefits of certain aspects of alternative medicine, you know, preventative medicine as, as, as well as, um, uh, you know, crisis medicine, um, doctors essentially trying to keep people well. He has he has a great mentality. He is a doctor, and he his practice changed um, from I am I am basically sick care, and he's trying to be health care. He's trying to help people stay well and get well, um, and he he's very inspirational in that regard. Um, a book was it a book that you wanted? Uh, we can go book. I'd I'd love that. We'll go book. A book and a social media person. Um, the book. Um, just because of, of the nature of the conversation that we've been having about real world application, that kind of thing, 
I would recommend anything by a guy called Joel Salatin. Um, so Joel, J-O-E-L, and then Salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N. And this guy is a farmer, right? Um, he calls himself the lunatic farmer because he um, he basically saw that everything that was being done in, in, in American farming was was not working. It was wrong. And he was breaking things. So touching on what you said about the, the, the climate change and the, the David Attenborough, you know, this guy has built a, a farm that is not just self-sustaining and self-sufficient, but it is holistic. It actually heals people and the land. So his his soil quality, the wildlife that's on his farm, it is just orders of magnitude better than anything in the local area. Um, and so I would highly recommend you you check him out, um, especially because, you know, a lot of strength coaches now want to incorporate good food and good training. And maybe that's a, a nice avenue for you. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, I think the whole idea that, and this is something I believe that everything does link to everything. And obviously the recommendation that you've given and strength being related to health, you can't have, you know, you can't be optimal, optimally fit and have poor health. Well, certainly not in the longer term anyway. Um, that's no, absolutely brilliant, mate. I've really, really enjoyed this and it's brilliant to hear another teacher's perspective as well as somebody who both teachers and coaches and how those practices influence each other. Thank you very much for your time, mate. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. That was episode seven of the Platform to Perform podcast with Ben Lucas and co-featuring his son, Jacob Lucas, for about a 30-second snippet around about the 25-minute mark. Ben will be competing in his first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competition on June the 1st, and I'll be supporting him both in person on the day and his strength and conditioning in the build-up to that. If you want to find out more about the services I provide, you can follow me on Twitter if you search Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. You can find me on Facebook by searching Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, that's at Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Catch you again in the next episode. Yeah.